Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Welcome back to Retrogram, the logbook.com's retro TV podcast that picks a week between 1970 and 1990, rewatches all of that week's sci-fi, horror, superhero, fantasy, and spy-fi shows, and pokes around to see if there's anything in those shows that speaks to the ages. And the week of August 29th, 1976 was definitely one for the ages. Is it because both the Ramones and the Seattle Seahawks were less than a month old? Or maybe because Gerald Ford had recently beat out Ronald Reagan for the nomination as the Republican Party's chosen candidate in the 1976 presidential election. Or because the first ever identified outbreak of a previously unrecorded virus had recently struck Zaire's Ebola River region. No, none of the above. During this week, Viking 2 became the second human-made space probe to successfully land intact on the planet Mars and return data from the surface. Viking 1 had already wowed the world in July 1976 by being the first, but there were no new episodes of any of the shows covered by Retrogram during that week in July, so let's see what was on during the last few days of August and the first few days of September 1976. Ironically, very much like that very first week of 1976 that we've previously covered in Retrogram, this week was quite literally the week before the American TV networks started their new season, so all three shows originated in the UK. Just a week later, American audiences, particularly if they were watching on Saturday mornings, were treated to the third season premieres of both Shazam and Land of the Lost, the second season premiere of Secret of Isis, and the series premieres of both Arc 2 and Electra Woman and Dinah Girl. But that was the week after this. The primetime season premieres of shows like The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, Gemini Man, and Holmes and Yo-Yo we're still three weeks away. So, as we in the 21st century celebrate the successful landing of NASA's Perseverance rover on Mars, also not the first of its kind, but the latest in an ongoing legacy of exploration, let's rewind to the week of August 29th, 1976, and watch... Star Maidens, Episode 1, Escape to Paradise, aired Wednesday, September 1st, 1976, on ITV. Welcome to the planet Medusa, orbiting the star Proxima Centauri. Medusa is ruled by a matriarchal society where there's a ruling council of women and menial work is performed by men. At least until disaster strikes, a rogue comet collides with Medusa, generating enough force to push the planet out of its star's orbit. 
The majestic cities on the surface are abandoned as the Medusans rebuild their entire society underground as the planet moves so far away from Proxima Centauri that it loses its atmosphere and the surface freezes. But generations later, Medusa is pulled into the solar system of another star, where a planet strongly resembling Medusa's original atmosphere is detected. You know, for the sake of argument, let's call this planet... Earth. But Earth is a backward society ruled by men, the antithesis of the entire Medusan philosophy, and the men of Earth have made a mess of things. Pollution, disease, and only the most primitive technology imaginable by Medusan standards. So as promising as it first appeared, Earth is declared off-limits, and in any case, Medusa is on a trajectory taking it back out of Earth's solar system. Naturally, this means someone wants to go there. Meet Adam. He's a slave owned by Supreme Counselor Fulvia, niece of the President of Medusa, and he's tired of men's lot in life on this world. If what he's hearing about Earth is true, it sounds like he'd be far better off there. The problem is, he's not the brains of the operation. He has to rely on a fellow slave, Shem, who has the technical knowledge necessary to get them to Earth. And what does Adam bring to the operation? He has access to Fulvia's personal space yacht, but first he has to perform his usual menial duties, preparing her dinner, telling her she's even more beautiful than she was yesterday, and when Octavia, Fulvia's chief of security, reveals that Medusa's central computer has predicted an uprising of domestic slaves and that she wishes to interrogate Adam, Fulvia says she'll send him along, but not until he's kissed Fulvia like he means it. Now she wants to take a nap before the next council meeting, asks Adam to set the alarm, which he does. He probably gives himself a little bit of extra time there when he does that, and then he takes the keys to the space yacht and takes off running while she's asleep. The alarms go off quickly, and he finds himself being pursued by the armed security women. You can tell they're working security by their bare midriffs, which are, of course, totally practical for security guards. He hustles Shem into the yacht, despite Shem's protests that it's not ready to fly. But they're cornered inside. Either they launch or they surrender. Adam tells Shem to set a course for Earth. If it's really ruled by men, it's the only planet that's safe for them. Meanwhile, on Earth, at the Institute of Radio Astronomy, astronomers Rudy and Liz join Professor Evans to track a historic development what appears to be an artificial object hurtling toward Earth from somewhere around the orbit of Neptune. No, make that somewhere around the orbit of Jupiter. That crazy object is plowing through the solar system at 300 million miles per hour. On Medusa, Octavia informs Fulvia that the President has given her orders to chase and capture Adam and Shem. Since Adam belongs to Fulvia, Fulvia can tag along, but since this is her mission, Octavia is in charge and she really doesn't have much time or patience for women of any rank who fall in love with mere slaves. Ick. And with that, their donut-shaped spacecraft lifts off for Medusa to give chase. On Earth, the scientists at the Institute are amazed as the artificial object keeps picking up speed, and another one has been detected, again out by Neptune and heading toward Earth. If they were looking for signs of life out there, it seems like there's a lot of life coming here. Aboard the stolen space yacht, Shem's even more worried than usual. The ship is coming in too fast for a safe landing on Earth, and he doesn't really know how to fly it. 
there's a transmission from Octavia's ship, ordering them to hand over navigational control to Octavia if they want to survive. But Adam doesn't want to merely survive. He wants to live and thrive. Luckily for him, instructions are sent from Earth, offering all the scientific data needed for a safe re-entry into the atmosphere. Adam and Shem feed this information into their navigation systems and brace for a hard landing. In the Medusan ship, Fulvia is shaken by what looks like the imminent death of her favorite slave. Octavia's like, no big loss, just a couple of dumb men. Professor Evans, Rudy, and Liz drive as fast as they can to the crash site, which they've calculated as being conveniently close by, and they arrive just in time to see two men in some sort of inflatable bubble, possibly some kind of crash survival device. And the credits roll to be continued. Star Maidens. Oh man, where to begin? <laughs> when introducing this show to people who have never heard of it before, I like to wind them up a bit by telling them that Star Maidens was the 1970s precursor to Lex. Much like Lex, it was an international co-production between a production company in, from Scotland making the show for ITV in the UK and the German broadcaster ZDF. As such, you have a very international cast and things are in their own 1970s way, a bit racier than what might have been produced without the mainland European involvement. By no means was Star Maiden the originator of the very, very overexposed trope of women's lib gone mad. But what it does that isn't quite as foregrounded as other variations on that theme is that Star Maidens manages to push a kind of soft kink element to the forefront. Now, we're not talking about something you'd find on Cinemax at 2 a.m. in the mid-1980s, and it's not really in your face with the dominatrixes in space thing, but it is there, barely concealed beneath the surface. Sort of like some of the racier jokes slipped into kids' shows today. It might go completely unnoticed by any kids watching. But the parents, oh yeah, their eyebrows would be lifting off and making a beeline for the stratosphere. Oddly enough, Star Maidens was produced at Bray Studios at roughly the same time that the first season of Space 1999 was in production, and there was some crossover in personnel since they were made during different parts of 1975, so you'll see some similarity in set design and other visual elements, such as the miniature model filming. But really, it's just kind of an overall similarity of tone. In ways both subtle and less than subtle, every show gives away clues as to when it was made, and Star Maidens, much like Space 1999, practically telegraphs to the audience that it's classic 70s TV sci-fi, spandex and all. In terms of set and costume design, this is as close as British sci-fi ever got to the distinctly 70s charms of Buck Rogers in the 25th century. The set for the main concourse area is used sparingly, but it's a really impressive set, with Fulvia's quarters running a close second. Everything was shot on film, so, you know, if there was any demand for it, which I kind of doubt there is, Someone could rescan this whole thing at HD or 4K if the original film exists somewhere and not just videotaped copies of it. Judy Geeson gets star billing and soft focus lenses that would make Jerry Finnerman proud, as Fulvia. On the big screen, she was in To Sir With Love, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, the one-off movie adaptation of the BBC series Doomwatch, The Eagle Has Landed, In Seminoid, 
and the Rob Zombie film 31. She has three upcoming movie appearances in 2021 alone. On TV, if you don't remember her from Star Maidens, she was seen in the newcomers, Thriller, Space 1999, Danger UXB, Tales of the Unexpected, Murder, She Wrote, The A-Team, and she was Sandrine, the holographic proprietor of the equally holographic pool hall in Star Trek Voyager's first couple of seasons. She was Maggie Conway in Mad About You, and she was Natalie Swope in Gilmore Girls. And yes, your spidey sense is correct, she moved from the UK to the US in the 1980s. New Zealand's own Lisa Harrow plays Liz. She also appeared in Space 1999, the BBC dystopia series 1990, which was broadcast in 1978, and she's kind of the mini-series queen, having played starring roles in Nancy Astor, Lizzie's Pictures, Strauss Dynasty, and others. She recently appeared in the series Step Dave. Playing Adam is the imposing French-born actor Pierre Bryce, who is best known for appearing as a Native American chief in a series of German-made westerns for most of the 1960s. Star Maidens was actually an attempt on his part to shed that image associated with that role, but it didn't work. His next gig was a 1980 series based around his Native American character, and that role clung to him to the point that, sort of like John Hurt showing up in Spaceballs, Pierre was spoofing himself and his Native American character in TV guest appearances throughout the 80s. Now, once the 90s hit, Pierre was able to break out into other series regular roles. We lost Pierre in 2015. Playing Shem is someone who really should need no introduction to Retrogram listeners. It's Welsh actor Gareth Thomas, future star of Children of the Stones, Blake Seven, and Knights of God. Though he too feared typecasting because of it, Gareth eventually grew comfortable with the fact that he was best known as Blake from Blake Seven. But he obviously wasn't too terribly ashamed of Star Maidens because an interview with Gareth is literally the only bonus feature in the DVD box set of Star Maidens. Gareth was also seen in The Citadel, Morgan's Boy, London's Burning, and a guest role in an episode of Torchwood's first season. He was a regular in Big Finish Productions audio series Dalek Empire, and appeared in Doctor Who and Blake's seven audio plays for Big Finish as well. We lost Gareth in 2016. Star Maidens was created by Eric Pace, who wrote numerous episodes of Target Luna, Pathfinders in Space, Pathfinders to Mars, Pathfinders to Venus. You know, a theme is definitely developing here. He also wrote episodes of The Avengers, Secret Army, and The Brothers. Eric died in 1989, and he was working up until the time of his death. Star Maidens is a fun little series, and my earlier comparison to Buck Rogers is very much intentional. You can take both shows about equally seriously. That being said, there's one episode later in the show's run that shows a remarkable amount of environmentalism consciousness for something from the early to mid-70s, so it can't be completely written off. But that being said, that episode is kind of an anomaly. The bulk of the series plays with those light kink elements I mentioned earlier, and although there is ample opportunity for it to put forth some actual feminist viewpoints, it's written by a dude, so it doesn't. You get a very stereotyped 70s view of feminism from a male perspective, which is maybe good for a guilty giggle here or there, but honestly, 
Colonel Wilma Deering could have kicked the ass of everybody in this show. Star Maidens doesn't have a whole lot to recommend it, except for some fun performances and some fun visual elements. I mean, really, why do Pierre Bryce and Gareth Thomas have those skunk stripes in their hair? If you go digging any deeper, though, Star Maidens is kind of cringeworthy. Doctor Who Season 14, Episode 1, The Mask of Mandragora, Part 1. Aired Saturday, September 4th, 1976, on BBC One. The story so far. The Doctor is a Time Lord on the run from his home planet Gallifrey and his people. He stole a TARDIS, a time machine bigger on the inside than out, and wanders the universe with his usually human companions, righting wrongs, occasionally defending Earth from alien invasions at various points along the history of the human race, and trying to defeat evil wherever he finds it. His current sidekick in the TARDIS is headstrong journalist Sarah Jane Smith. The Mask of Mandragora, Part 1 The Doctor and Sarah are exploring the TARDIS. Well, really, Sarah's exploring the TARDIS, and the Doctor is just following along and being flippant about it. Sarah stumbles across something the Doctor describes as the second control room. It's kind of like the gleaming white one we're used to. There are still round things on the walls, but it's all wood paneling, brass railing, and it's just a bit steampunk. But the Doctor says he can run things from here, and he turns on the view screen, and of course, what it shows is swirly blue trouble. The Mandragora Helix, a spiral of energy with some kind of disembodied intelligence at its core, is swirling away on the screen. Swirly thing alert! And before they know it, the TARDIS is jolted. Whatever this strangely intelligent vortex is, it has the TARDIS. The doctor says the best they can hope for is to fly the TARDIS through it and emerge on the other side. Which kind of rhymes with, no one has ever successfully done this before. Sarah says she can feel the intelligence in her head, crowding out her own thoughts. And then the TARDIS comes in for a landing, in this crystal formation that's mostly empty space. So much empty space that the doctor tentatively taps his foot outside the TARDIS to see if there's even a solid surface. But there is. There's something else there, too. A glowing red ball of helix energy. The doctor and Sarah duck out of the way to avoid it, and then it's gone. Wonder where it went. The doctor doesn't care where it went. This is far too dangerous a place to stay. He hustles Sarah into the TARDIS and takes off again as quickly as possible. Earth, Italy, the 1400s, peasants, marauders, swords, stabbing, screaming. Well, it's not going well for the peasants, whatever is going on. Wait, are those really marauders, or is that the personal guard of Count Federico? He's riding into San Martino to pay his respects to the Duke. In the village, young Giuliano mourns the death of his father, the Duke a death that was foreseen with disturbing accuracy by his father's court astrologer, Hieronymus. Oh, and uh, Count Federico, he's the brother of the deceased, and Giuliano is in his way as the direct heir. But Giuliano is unwilling to be intimidated by either Federico or Hieronymus. He doesn't believe in Hieronymus' superstitious outlook, nor in Federico's casual cruelty. 
If he was aware of it, Giuliano would be alarmed to know that Federico and Hieronymus are already discussing what an obstacle Giuliano is to Count Federico's plans to ascend to the dukedom, but he doesn't know. Nor does he know that they are plotting to kill him. Nor does he know that the TARDIS just materialized outside. The TARDIS door opens and out walk the Doctor and Sarah, and they've been in Renaissance Italy mere minutes before Sarah is abducted by monks, and the Doctor is knocked out while trying to stop them. And then the TARDIS door opens again and out floats... Oh, hey, we found that glowing red ball of helix energy. It's stowed away in the TARDIS, and off it floats. The doctor comes to just in time to see it kill a hapless peasant, and it's only then that he realizes he is responsible for it being here. Giuliano receives a warning from his uncle and Hieronymus that a bad astrological omen has foretold his doom now as well. Giuliano is very cool about this latest prophecy, and reveals that he doesn't think the stars have anything to do with his father's death either, so he'll take this as the threat on his life that it is. Outside, the doctor is searching for Sarah when he runs afoul of Count Federico's men. Where is Sarah? She's blindfolded, being dragged to an altar that appears to be in some dank underground cellar. A high priest starts prattling about how her arrival has been foretold, and she is to be sacrificed to the god Demnos. This is not looking good. The doctor's chances of survival aren't looking much better. Brought before Count Federico and Hieronymus, he tries to explain, in pre-Renaissance terms, about an evil energy that has been unleashed upon the land, and how they need his help to stop it. They don't listen to a word that he says, but he's clearly caught the attention of Giuliano. That, however, is not going to help. The doctor is sentenced to be executed. Sarah is led to the altar while the doctor is brought before the executioner for beheading, and... To be continued. <clears throat> Sorry. The Mask of Mandragora was written by Lewis Marks. Lewis Marks had a lengthy career as a producer and script editor, and this was among his many freelance writing credits. His first Doctor Who script was 1964's Planet of Giants, the kickoff to the second season of the series, starring William Hartnell. He wrote the four-part story Day of the Daleks for John Pertwee and a previous Tom Baker four-parter, Planet of Evil, he also wrote several episodes of Doomwatch. Gareth Armstrong stars as Giuliano. This is a very early career highlight for Welsh actor Gareth Armstrong. He would go on to provide the voice of Sandy in the English-dubbed Japanese series Monkey on BBC Two, which is a personal favorite of mine. And he made guest appearances in Blake Seven, Hammer House of Horror, A Gentleman's Club, Casualty, and East Enders. As recently as 2016, he was doing voice acting for video games and computer games, such as Risen 2, Dark Waters, and Warhammer Total War. Though it's not really exploited as a location very thoroughly in the first part of the story, the location used for the Duke's Village in The Mask of Vandragora has been used as a village for filming before. It's Port Marion in North Wales, the location used as the village, the village, in The Prisoner. Port Marion was intended to kind of evoke the Renaissance, and by all accounts, the cast and crew really loved filming there. And you know, even though it wasn't filmed in Port Marion proper, that location scene with the helix energy sparking steam and sparks as it went across the pond at very low altitude, that did remind me a little bit of countless scenes of Rover bouncing across a watery surface. So, 
This is the beginning of season 14 of Classic Doctor Who, which ran for 26 seasons before being cancelled. This is the halfway point of the original formulation of Doctor Who. This unlikely episode is the divide between the first half of the series and the second half. Now that's really just numerical significance that's not reflected in the plot in any way, of course. It's just an interesting thing to note in hindsight. For more inconsequential fun, look at how horrified fans were when the 18-month hiatus happened between 1985 and 86. And now look at us. Doctor Who has been back on the air for 16 years, and we've only gotten 11 seasons of the show in that time. So, very much like the mid to late 80s, the seasons also keep getting shorter. Now, please understand, this is not me saying, Oh, look at all the parallels. They're about to cancel it again because Chibnall and... And Jody and... Uh, I don't believe any of those things. I think Chibnall is doing fine, and I love Jody Whittaker's Doctor. I also know that the past couple of years have been a hell of a time to try to get any kind of show made, let alone one that has more stunt and special effects requirements than the average bear. I just think it's interesting how accustomed we've gotten to lengthy pauses in the production of modern Doctor Who. Whereas at this point in 1976... It showed up every year like clockwork. This is also the next-to-last full four-part story to be graced by the marvelous Elizabeth Sladen as Sarah Jane Smith. After four weeks of The Mask of Mandragora, we got four weeks of The Hand of Fear, and the Doctor returned Sarah to Earth at the end of that story. Following The Hand of Fear was a four-part story called The Deadly Assassin, which saw the Doctor return to Gallifrey for the first time, after which came The Face of Evil, the four-part story that introduced Leela. So although it's only in hindsight that the series is at its halfway point, there was some conscious effort going on behind the scenes to make some changes. Sarah had been the Doctor's sidekick dating back to December 1973, stretching back to the entirety of John Pertwee's final season as the star of the show. So she had been a fixture in the show's formula for a healthy span, you know, a pretty good portion of the show's lifetime. So this was a major change that was in the works, even though there's not really any evidence here that it's about to happen. Now, while the doctor says the second control room is the old one, and there are visual cues to back that up, like one of the third doctor's shirts and jackets, and the second doctor's recorder, this set has never been seen before. And honestly, it was seldom used again. It's the most radical redesign of the console room that the original show ever attempted, though the steampunkish elements were hugely influential, on, let's just say, every TARDIS control room design from the Paul McGann movie forward. But this was intended to completely replace the larger, more traditional white walls with round things set permanently. It was smaller, including the console. But the problem is, the very real wood that it was made out of warped in storage. So in the fall of 1977, when the, when the TARDIS control room makes its first appearance in the next season, they had to build another new set from scratch, but more along the lines of the original futuristic white room with round things, and those walls were in service almost to the end of the original series. So that's why the wooden Jules Vernish control room is only here for a single season. Don't get attached. I hadn't seen this episode in a very long time, so I found some new stuff here that hadn't really hit me before, such as the very clear argument Giuliano makes in favor of science and against superstition. It's really strong stuff for 1976 Doctor Who. I liked it quite a bit. The scenery and costumes and location shooting 
are top-notch for the time. I am going to disappoint a lot of folks and say I'm just not a fan of the little wooden control room and the little wooden console. Now, from a design influence standpoint, yes, I can see a direct through line from this to one of the all-time great TARDIS sets, the magnificent Paul McGann movie console. But this one, eh, eh, sorry, I just never really dug it. Not then, not really now. You know what's next, don't you? It's a word from our sponsor! Ashley Thomas is the nerdy blogger. Ashley has a master's degree in literature and language, as well as a decade's worth of experience in writing for web publications. If you're looking for someone to assist you with copy for your website, blog posts, email campaigns, web store, social media management, or assistance with search engine optimization, Ashley's your gal. Ashley also spends her time writing about film, television, and comic books, contributing to such sites as Fangirlish.com and PopCultureRetroRama.com. You can learn more about Ashley and the work she does at nerdyblogging.wordpress.com, where you can contact her for more information about her writing services. The Nerdy Blogger is proud to be a supporter of thelogbook.com and its podcasts. Season 2, Episode 1, The Metamorph, aired Saturday, September 4th, 1976, on ITV. The story so far. In the year 1999, Moonbase Alpha is the furthest outpost of human space explorers, an advanced self-contained facility with dozens of human researchers, medical personnel, engineers, astronaut pilots, and a few administrators. Commander John Koenig arrives to take command of Alpha amid a government cover-up of a growing wave of unexplained illnesses and deaths. As Moonbase Alpha prepares to monitor the launch of the interstellar Metaprobe, the first human-crewed mission to a planet around another star, disaster strikes. A nuclear waste dump reaches a critical temperature and its contents detonate, generating enough force to push the moon out of Earth's orbit. The launch platform of the Metaprobe is wrecked, and the crew of Moonbase Alpha barely survives. Koenig, along with Chief Medic Dr. Helen Russell, Chief Scientist Professor Victor Bergman, Second-in-Command Paul Morrow, Hotshot Eagle Pilot Alan Carter, and the rest of his command staff struggle to keep everyone under his command alive and prepared to face the unknowable wonders that await them as the moon is hurtled into deep space beyond the solar system. Except forget that Victor Bergman and Paul Morrow were ever here, for beginning with this episode, Tony Verdeschi is now the second in command, and we shall never speak of Victor and Paul ever again. No, seriously, not even once. Not even some offhanded dialogue mentioned that they died tragically off-screen. They are simply never spoken of again. It's as if they were never there to begin with. <sighs> Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's tell the story of The Metamorph. We start with a log entry from Dr. Helena Russell. It's been only 342 days since the moon was blown out of Earth's orbit, just under a year. A recent plunge through a space warp has left some life support systems damaged, 
and a nearby planet is being visited by an Eagle crew to look for traces of titanium, which is needed to make repairs. Traces are detected, but the planet is kind of a volcanic wasteland, at least on the surface. And from below the surface, a green glowing ball emerges and begins pursuing the Eagle. After a warning from Commander Koenig, who can apparently see the glowing ball of energy better than the Eagle crew can, the pilot puts the pedal to the floor and tries to outrun it, but even evasive maneuvers don't throw it off. So there's clearly an intelligence guiding whatever it is. Can we just call it the Lochnar? Oh wait, Heavy Metal's not out until 1981. The Green Globe surrounds the Eagle and drags it back to the planet. There are no life signs originating from the planet, according to the sensors on Alpha. But then a bearded face appears on the screen in Alpha's command center and addresses Commander Koenig by name. This is Mentor, a man who claims that his people have been attacked before by survey vessels such as the Eagle. So he doesn't exactly trust Koenig. But he claims the Eagle crew is still alive, they're just fine. There's a little bit of haggling, and Mentor agrees to a rendezvous in space, and says he can provide the titanium needed on the moon base. Koenig agrees, but he has Alan prep an Eagle with additional boosters anyway. On the planet, Mentor addresses what looks like a lioness. Yes, as in a large cat from Earth that just happens to be hanging out in his control room on an alien planet. What do you think of these humans, he asks. In the blink of an eye, the lioness suddenly looks human-ish, about as human as Mentor. This is Mentor's daughter, Maya, and she apparently is a shapeshifter. It's an ability Mentor has taught her, and he refers to it as the secret of molecular transformation. The new eagle launches toward the rendezvous with a giant honking extra booster module attached to its backbone. Koenig, Alan Carter, Dr. Russell, and another crew member are aboard. When it's in place, a ship rises from the surface of the planet and locks onto it with some kind of magnetic force. Tony Verdeshi, uh, remember him? He's the new first officer. He signals the Eagle for Moonbase. There are no life signs on that ship, so obviously the previous Eagle's crew is not aboard and something is hinky. It takes everything this Eagle's got, including the extra booster, to get away from Mentor's empty ship. That's when Mentor's ship turns into a green ball of energy, and I so want to call this the Lochnar, and it drags Koenig's eagle down to the planet anyway. The eagle is deposited in a crater-like formation, surrounded by other ships, including the previous eagle captured by Mentor. This is not inspiring confidence, and needless to say, any kind of trust that might have existed between Koenig and Mentor has been shot to hell. But there's Mentor on the comms screen anyway, trying to reassure Koenig and his crew everything's cool. Until the pilot of the other eagle tries to shout a warning in the background, and he's silenced by some sort of energy fired by one of Mentor's people. Mentor wants them to stay put in their ship, while in Mentor's lab, the other crew member of the first eagle is subjected to some sort of process which does not even remotely look painless. Later, Maya reappears, and Mentor shows her that something beneficial can be derived from the humans. Maya asks if this was donated willingly and with no harm to the donor, and of course Mentor lies and assures her, oh yeah, everything's on the up and up. Koenig and his Eagle crew decide not to stay put, entering Mentor's base of operations. Dr. Russell finds some titanium lying around, and Koenig finds that there's already a mining operation here, one staffed with slave laborers. Presumably the crews of all those other alien ships. There's a big-headed guy of the big-headed people. 
a green dude with huge sideburns of the green dudes with huge sideburns people, a couple of bird-headed fellows of the bird-headed people, and none of this really matters because they are all shuffling around like zombies, and Koenig is pretty sure this is what awaits his crew as well. That's when the blood-curdling scream is heard. Ah, that must come from this disheveled member of the blood-curdling scream people, and hey, wait a minute. That's the guy from Alpha that Mentor was experimenting on. Trouble. A guard has spotted Koenig's party. Koenig sets his laser to stun and nails the guy before he can get off a shot, and the guard is kind of mummified by something that looks like brown candle wax. Ooh, earwax. Ugh. A semi-transparent image of Mentor appears, warning Koenig and friends to drop their weapons. He also says that the energy of those weapons will simply be used against them, which the fourth member of Koenig's Eagle crew proves by firing his laser at Mentor's image, only to be vaporized by its ricocheting energy. Farewell, guy whose name was apparently Lou. We shall not see your likes again until we need the next Space 99 equivalent of another red shirt. Koenig awakens in a cell across from... Whoa, is that a lioness? Of a kind that really only exists on Earth? Why, yes it is. Oh, <laughs> psych. It's Maya again, just being playful. But Koenig is not amused. When he starts shouting about the atrocities Maya's father has committed, she doesn't believe him, but she does tell him Mentor is waiting to meet him in person. In Mentor's lab, Alan Carter, Dr. Helena Russell, and that pilot from the first Eagle are all waiting the same fate as their zombified crewmate. Koenig is escorted into the lab, but Mentor chases Maya off. This is grown-up man talk, despite the fact that Maya is at the very least in her 30s. Anyway, Mentor introduces Koenig to Psyche, organic computer which gives the Psycons, those are Mentor and Maya's people, their powers of molecular transformation. That's the only way the Psycons survived the disaster that turned the surface of their planet into a volcanic hellscape. And Psyche needs a constant stream of donors. The entire crew of Moonbase Alpha will do nicely. And if Koenig doesn't agree, Mentor can transform the lunar surface into its own volcanic hellscape. Koenig calls Mentor's bluff. At least the people on Moonbase Alpha will die quickly if that happens, rather than being turned into zombie slave laborers. But then Mentor shows Koenig his three fellow crew members hooked up to Psyche as its next donors. And he begins the process. Koenig relents and contacts the Moonbase, telling Tony Verdeshi, You remember him? He's the new first officer to begin evacuating the moon base under Directive 4. Mentor stops the process. What Mentor doesn't know is that Directive 4 is a kind of code word meaning wherever I am sending this message from, destroy that place. An eagle is outfitted with remote control and lots of nukes, and it's programmed to slam into Psycon. Mentor thinks it's the first wave of evacuees until Maya scans to see how many humans are aboard it, and of course, there aren't any. She goes to the cell where Koenig and his friends are being held to confront him about his savagery and deception. That's when Koenig tells her, go to the mines and see what has become of the other visitors that have come to Psycon. She thinks she can't go there because it's a radioactive hazard. But Koenig implores her, hey, we went there. Go and see if I am telling the truth. Come back to free me if what I'm saying is true. She runs out of the room. Well, had to try. Mentor destroys the automated suicide eagle and then brings up a screen in Koenig's cell so the commander can witness Moonbase Alpha being attacked by Psycon's weaponry. 
That's when Maya shows up. Guess where she just went and what she just saw. Having witnessed her father threatening to destroy everyone on the moon base, she lets Koenig and his crew free. Koenig sends Russell and the others to prep the Eagle for launch, while he charges into Mentor's lab and starts tearing Psyche apart piece by piece. Mentor shouts a warning, releasing all of Psyche's energy will destroy the entire planet. But Koenig keeps dismantling it, and for once, it seems Mentor might be telling the truth. The volcanic eruptions on the surface are becoming more violent. It seems that Psyche was holding Psycon together by sheer force of well, whatever it had that amounts to willpower. It's too late for Mentor, but he begs Koenig to get Maya away from the planet before it destroys himself. Koenig offers to evacuate them both, but it's too late for Mentor. Grief-stricken, Maya goes with Koenig back to the Eagle where they witness Psycon blasting itself to bits. Koenig assures Maya that there is a place for her on Alpha, which she doubts very much. After all, she's an alien. Koenig tells her that we're all aliens until we get to know one another. And then the credits roll, during which he's probably telling her, I'm okay, you're okay. The end. This is the first episode of Space 1999's second season under its new showrunner, Fred Freiberger. Yes, the same Fred Freiberger who took over the day-to-day -day production duties for the third season of Star Trek. At this point in the life of Space 1999, while the first season had done well in the ratings, ITV was apparently of the opinion that life is good, but it could be better, so Freiberger was brought in in an obvious and kind of blatant attempt to make Space 1999 more of a success in North America, where the sometimes strange metaphysical tone poem that was the first season just hadn't quite gotten a mass audience. The cult audience that would show up for any sci-fi on TV was there, and solidly so. And hey, Mattel had that awesome eagle toy that particularly well-heeled kids could get back then. But it was not... The show was not a smash hit. Now, the eagle toy? Oh yeah, that was a hit. I think more people had that toy than actually watched the show. In that context, the Metamorph is effectively repiloting Space 1999. Even the new opening credits, which introduced Martin Landau by having him stand up and fire his laser at something off-screen, they're there to tell you this isn't the contemplative show that it was last season. This is about action. Everyone's got orange jackets. Look, we put the words Red Alert right on the screen. Action! But since the more contemplative metaphysical side of the show was being more or less jettisoned, characters like Barry Morse's Victor Bergman were out the window with absolutely no explanation. Prentice Hancock, who played Paul Morrow in the first season, has said that to this day he has no idea why he was let go from the show. Also being shown to the airlock, and this really was a surprise, was Jerry Anderson's longtime musical collaborator, Barry Gray, who had been scoring Anderson's TV projects since the early days of Supermarionation. Season 2 was scored by Derek Wadsworth, who brought a very pop music sensibility to the scores. I actually like some of the music from this season, don't get me wrong, but there's only so much tension you can introduce by having a drummer play 16th notes on the hi-hats. Whereas Barry Gray's music was perhaps even more successful in the scripts, in signaling that the people aboard Moonbase Alpha were truly alone in the universe and that their plight might be a hopeless one, Derek Wadsworth's music was a lot like, well... Everything else on TV around that time, you could have transplanted the music to Starsky and Hutch. Now life on Moonbase Alpha was groovy, man. 
There's also kind of an abrupt change of tone in the relationship between Commander Koenig and Dr. Russell. They were, after all, played by a couple of actors who were husband and wife in real life, so the first season's underlying current of, well, these two might work together, was gone, and now they were suddenly definitely a couple. The real tragedy of the casting changes wrought between seasons, which go completely unacknowledged in the show's narrative, is... Do you know who would have totally gotten off on studying Maya's shape-shifting ability? Victor Bergman. Arguably, Paul Morrow was perhaps a bit replaceable as the second-in-command. In fact, you remember the last time we talked about Paul, and he was under the influence of alien fungus and decided that he was Adam in a new Garden of Eden? If you're looking for things to make sense narratively, that would have been a perfect opportunity to perhaps... Send Paul off to space mushroom rehab and promote a never-before-seen character to the forefront. But that's not how it worked. Paul and Victor were simply never spoken of again. Now, you know what would be really neat? Big Finish is remaking Space 1999 as an audio series now, including updates of some of the original scripts. If Big Finish, as it proceeds with its audio remake, kept this in mind and brings Maya in without dispensing with Victor, that would be cool to hear Victor just grooving on what an unlikely living thing Maya is, what an unusual defensive capability she has. I actually think that would make a more interesting character dynamic than having Tony Verdeschi just make moon eyes at her for the rest of the show's run. You know who is in the cast, though? Brian Blessed! I don't think it works unless you say it like that, if not louder. In fact, I hear that if you say it like that three times while looking into the mirror, Brian Blessed appears and begins yelling, Gordon's alive! at you. This is Brian's second guest appearance on Space 1999, his first in an unrelated first season episode with a completely different character who is more or less the leader of a kind of death cult. Interestingly, between his two Space 1999 appearances, Brian Blessed filmed a live-action pilot for Jerry Anderson, into Infinity the day after tomorrow, which, if it had gone to series, would have meant a starring role for him, very much an oddity, in a career that's really more guest-starring roles and movie roles than instances of being the leading man in a series, something that he had not done since the early 60s BBC police series Z-Cars. In addition to Tony Anholt joining the cast as Tony Verdeschi, Catherine Schell joins here as Maya. Catherine was born in 1944 to a Hungarian family with royal blood and titles to go with them, living in Germany as diplomats at a time when diplomacy wasn't a thing that was going on where Germany was concerned anymore. Going back to Hungary wasn't an option with the Soviets bearing down on Eastern Europe, so the Schell family went first to Austria and then to the United States, arriving in 1950. She initially went to school in New York City until her father accepted a job with Radio Free Europe, which took the family back to Munich when Catherine was 13. It was there that the acting bug bit, and only five years after her first movie appearance, she was a Bond girl in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. More movie appearances followed, Moon Zero Two, Return of the Pink Panther, The Prisoner of Zenda, and quite a few guest roles as well, including one of my all-time favorite Doctor Who stories, City of Death. After a long period of retirement from showbiz, she recently resurfaced in 2020 in the BBC's Dracula series. She published a memoir in 2016 titled, appropriately or perhaps tragically, A Constant Alien. 
How responsible is it of Koenig to go up to the missing pilot's girlfriend, wife, whatever she is, and tell her, just before he embarks on his mission to Sycon, we'll bring him back? How about, we'll do everything in our power to bring him back? How about, we'll do our best to bring him back? How about leaving yourself some wiggle room for failure and not making it sound so much like a promise? When Koenig is captured by Mentor, that bright orange room he wakes up in, is there any setting more 70s than a bright orange cell that when you leave it opens up into a bright orange symmetrical corridor whose support columns kind of form elongated hexagons? I mean, it's the first rule of 70s sci-fi architecture that hexagonal hallways are the defining visual element of the future. Oh, that fourth member of Koenig's landing party, the end credits tell us his name was Lou. Lou Picard. Presumably not an ancestor of Jean-Luc, because this guy was an impulsive chump and kind of lasered himself to death. So, is the Metamorph a good episode of Space 1999? It's really hard to say if you're trying to judge it in isolation, because it's such a radical departure from everything the show had done or been before at this point. I'm not even sure how to judge it as part of a larger whole, because this sets into motion everything that Space 1999 would be for the remainder of its run, and whether or not you like that result is going to color how you like the episode that started it. I think the most objective thing one can say about the Metamorph is, it's different. It's unmistakably a turning point in the show. You're definitely watching Freddy Freiberger's Space 1999 now, rather than Jerry and Sylvia Anderson's Space 1999. Less objectively, there are things I really like about the Metamorph, though I find the whiplash casting changes annoying. Just acting like the previous cast members were never there to begin with is an insult to the audience's intelligence. There are also some ridiculous things in here, such as the girlfriend, wife, whatever, of the aforementioned Eagle pilot, fainting in the middle of the command center. That belongs in a sitcom from the 50s. Give me a break. By the way, if you remember seeing this movie with Tom Servo and Crow T. Robot in the audience, you're not wrong. In 1982, The Metamorph and another second season episode titled Space Warp were mashed together into a TV movie for syndication titled Cosmic Princess. And at some point, whatever syndication package it was a part of was bought by a Minneapolis TV station with the call letters KTMA, whose production personnel tapped into the local stand-up comedy scene for talent and created a little thing called Mystery Science Theater 3000. When MST3K wound up moving from local Minneapolis TV to cable, it did not take Cosmic Princess with it, so only KTMA viewers got to see it, one of whom apparently recorded it and then made that recording available on the internet. The season of MST3K that was made at KTMA was mostly an exercise in improv, and I will just say that Cosmic Princess is probably the high-water mark of improvised MST3K. And that's how you launch a new season of quality sci-fi in the UK. Poor Viking, too. It had missed some good shows. Oh, the things it got to see on the surface of Mars. And Perseverance has things to see and places to go, too, even though it's going to miss the next season of The Orville. The Retrogram podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. 
The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. If you like Retrogram, give a big thanks to the logbook.com's Patreon supporters. Folks like Kevin, Ferg, Darwin, Cindy, Paul, Mark, Charles, and Ashley. That's a bunch of people. If you love Retrogram, join them as a patron or support us another way. Every little bit of help keeps thelogbook.com and its podcasts and videocasts going. Find out more at patreon.com slash thelogbook, or if you want to help out without the ongoing commitment, throw a coffee our way at ko-fi.com slash thelogbook. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, mugs, socks, face masks, and other goodies from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com. Or you can order all sorts of things through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store from places like Amazon and eBay. If you need to stay current on Star Trek Discovery or Lower Decks or Picard, you can sign up for a free week of Paramount Plus through our links. And if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps the logbook and retrogram out a lot. If you can't remember those links, that's cool too. Visit the show page at thelogbook.com slash retrogram and you can find them all there. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com. Sci-Fi 5 is the newest show from Roddenberry Podcasts. Five minutes of sci-fi history in every episode, delivered to you every weekday from the first name in science fiction. Get to know the creators, the background, and even the science behind your favorite stories. Our rotating panel of hosts bring you some of the least known details about some of our best known popular culture. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite shows. Then get ready for a full year of great stories only on Sci-Fi 5.